Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. So the experts have come out and made their predictions for 2024. And this is something you won't believe. (laughs) It is completely removed from the average Joe and Jane. Let's get right over to the Wall Street Journal. You'll see exactly what I'm referring to. So here we go. Whoops. Title. The recession is no longer consensus. In fact, it's off the table, guys. You don't have to worry about it. The economy's booming. Just forget about the fact that you can't afford to put food on the table and you can't afford to put a roof over your head and just just completely ignore that. And the whole marketplace with the, the bond market, you know, and the yield curve, just completely ignore that and focus on one thing, one thing only. That is the unemployment rate and what has happened over the last six months. So the main reason I wanted to go over this story was not just to tell you kind of what's going on in the news, but more so to help give you insight as to how these mainstream economists, these talking heads in the financial media operate. Their number one priority is what? We discuss this on this channel all the time. It's keeping their job. So all of the predictions that they make, whether it's for 2024 or you know for the rest of 2023, whatever it is, I can almost guarantee you that the majority, the consensus view is going to be simply whatever has happened in the last six months, that's just going to continue to happen forever, just indefinitely into the future. And you think about it, it makes sense because what's the best way to keep your job? Well, just look at what has happened because they know that human beings have a tendency towards recency bias. Therefore, whatever has happened in the last three or six months, if they say that's going to happen, well, oh, yeah, obviously. Wow, that guy is really, really smart. That's genius. Yes, whatever's happened. Now, they don't say that their prediction is just whatever happens or has happened over the last six months. They just extrapolate that forward to infinity and beyond. They they don't say that, but they come out with this prediction, which effectively is the exact same thing. And my point is the mainstream, the average Joe and Jane that's watching CNBC, that's kind of plugged into the matrix, if you will, to use that red pill terminology. They're, they're the blue pill. <laughs> they're the blue pill, the blue pillars of finance and, and, and macroeconomics. But these people just listen to those predictions and say, yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And they don't realize in the back of their head, their subconscious, the reason it makes sense is because they have a tendency towards recency bias. So what I want to encourage you guys to do as rebel capitalists and by definition, people who are contrarian and by definition, people who value independent thinking. I want to encourage you to understand when you're watching CNBC or you're watching this channel, we're talking about the Wall Street Journal or XYZ, to look at it through that lens. The lens of these uh, experts are doing whatever it is to ensure that they keep their jobs. And, And nine out of 10 times, that's just taking the last six months and extrapolating it indefinitely into the future. And these predictions are, once you kind of scratch beneath the surface, you see that it's all nonsense. That's what we're going to do right now by going through the rest of this article. I actually took my time and, and made some highlights here. I'm, get, I'm getting professional. Economists are turning optimistic. So it's not just that we won't have a, a recession. 
no, no, no. This is, we've got room for optimism. Let's put on the rose-colored glasses. Recession, forget talking about recession anymore. We should just be talking about how much the economy is going to boom. It's just a a matter of to what degree are we going to have massive economic growth? (laughs) Now they think it'll skirt a recession. The Federal Reserve is done raising rates and inflation will continue to ease. It's really weird. So what rationale do they give us? Why are we going to have this perfect landing where we're, we're, we're going to have no landing? We're, we're not even going to face a recession. We're just going to go right back. In fact, the central planners, I mean, let's be honest, guys, the central planners and authoritarians, they are so smart that they have eliminated the business cycle. They've just completely eliminated it. So we don't have to worry about it ever, ever again. It goes right back to what Janet Yellen was saying and what was that, 2016, 17 or something? That we're just never gonna have a recession again for the rest of our life. For the for for the rest of our lifetimes, everyone living on earth is never gonna see a recession because the central planners have so many tools now that they didn't have before. They have such an unbelievable understanding of how the economy works, that they're just going to sit there and fine-tune it with these little dials. And we might have a couple little dips here and there, but nowhere near recession. We're just going to have economic growth forever, and we owe it all to the brilliance and the genius of the central planners. That's really kind of the overall theme to what they're saying. But for you guys who are rebel capitalist independent thinkers, I'm sure the first thing that comes to your mind is like, okay, well, in my world, I don't see a booming economy. <laughs> All my friends are figuring out how they're going to put food on the table. So what, what rationale are these guys or gals using? Well, here you go. The probability of recession continues to recede in the United States as banking turmoil subsides. Okay. Strong labor market resilience and rising real income support consumer demand. So that's pretty much their argument. If you want to throw in this next paragraph, fueling optimism, key factors. The Fed is done raising interest rates and robust and the uh, labor market's robust and economic growth has outperformed expectations. Let's start with the latter. Economic growth has outperformed expectations expectations were in the gutter <laughs> so the fact that it's look this is this is like uh you know having someone that that, that weighs 400 pounds or something like that and you're uh, and you give them an objective to lose one pound over the next year and they lose two pounds and you're like whoa wow Wow, great job. I mean, you are on the path to just, we got to be optimistic about these results. You are on the path to, to, <laughs> to being a triathlete, for heaven's sakes. Well, yeah, when you set the bar so low, sure, if you exceed that, but I don't know if that's room for optimism, that they go from 400 pounds down to 398 pounds. I wouldn't be too optimistic about those results. But getting back to the other points that they're making. Let's, uh, let's focus on this last paragraph, and then I'm going to get to that uh, the one that precedes that. So they talked about the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. And I think they actually mentioned this. The uh, And I'm, I'm separating these two paragraphs because they're, I think uh, this, the latter, is the Wall Street Journal kind of giving a summary of this survey that they did. And the first paragraph here is a, uh, 
a query or an answer from specific economists. And I think they both include, let's see, probably a recession, uh, labor market resilience, income, demand. Oh, banking turmoil subsides. Okay, so uh, let's start. Actually, let me focus here. Let's get to this second paragraph. So Federal Reserve done raising interest rates. Okay, let's address that real quick. Because further on down this article, we're not there yet, but they're going to address this whole soft landing thing. That it looks like the probability is very high that we have this soft landing. Okay, great. So let's just test that empirically. It's, it's easy to do. We just go back and look at a chart of Fed funds. And we can see past interest rate hiking cycles and what they have led to. So let's go through here and, um, you know, just look at the past results. We can go all the way back to 1955. And let's look at a time when we, have a, when we had an inverted curve and we had a Fed rate hiking cycle. And let's try to find the, all the times throughout history where this didn't lead to a recession. Okay. So we start with 1957, ah, recession. All right, well, let's go to 1959, 1960, nope, recession. All right, so let's go <laughs> to 1960. Now, I, I, will, I will grant you this. 1966, we were very, very, very close to having a recession. Economic uh, or GDP growth just collapsed in real terms. We did have a slight inversion of the curve. And we did have a very small, I don't know if you want to call this a rate hiking cycle, but they, let's just be objective here as we possibly can. And the, the Fed funds went from 4% up to 5.5. So in percentage terms, basically nothing, considering recently we've gone from 0 to 5.5. But let's give the devil their due here. And it is true that if you want to call this a rate hiking cycle right here, from 1965 to the end of 1966, I'll give you that one. And it did not lead to a recession, although economic growth collapsed and the in, the curve was just slightly inverted. Let's move on to 1969. We see a big rate hiking cycle there and we see a recession. Uh, there we go, 70s, early 80s. <laughs> Uh, 90s, uh, here you see a rate hiking cycle in the mid-90s, but we did not have an uh, inverted curve. You see dot-com, where we did have an inverted curve. You see recession, GFC, recession. You see Cervasa sickness, recession. So here's the kicker, guys. If you go back to 1955, let's say we have one, two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten times. When we had a Fed rate hiking cycle with an inverted curve that led to a recession, a quote unquote hard landing, we had one time that it didn't. So if you're betting on probabilities, which I think you should, where are you going to place your bet? Just based on this. But now let's go back to that Wall Street Journal article and this paragraph. Remember, the Federal Reserve is done hiking interest rates, so therefore we've got nothing to worry about completely ignoring the fact that we have just had the one of the biggest rate hiking cycles we have ever seen. In percentage terms, we've had the biggest rate hiking cycle in United States history. And 90% of the time, especially when you have an inverted curve, 90% uh, of the time, that leads to a hard landing. But let's just completely ignore all that. 
And just let's just focus on the fact that the Fed is, is done raising rates as if there's no lag effect. You see, so again, my main point here, guys, is you'll notice they're just taking the recent past, extrapolating it into the future. But if you put on your, your common sense hat, if you think through this critically, you, you're going to see that this is just all fluff and just complete nonsense. And then this is going to give you a much better perspective on the world. And it's going to help you set up your portfolio in a way that's most conducive to overall probabilities. But I'm not done. Let's go through the robust labor market. And this pertains to what uh, the BMO economists, Doug Porter and Scott Anderson, were saying in this Wall Street Journal survey, where they're talking about how real incomes support consumer demand. Really? Well, that's really that, that that's odd that they would say that, because if you just take 34 seconds and go over to a chart of real median income since 2019 uh, household incomes, you see that that has done what? It's gone straight down. So, OK, great. Over the past couple months, incomes have exceeded the rate of inflation. And I would say in some states, more on that in just a moment. But overall, the purchasing power is way less than it was in 2019. So how can you sit there and say that, oh, well, even if we have had two or three months where wages have exceeded the rate of consumer price inflation, how can you sit there and say that this is room to be optimistic when we started here and we're still all the way down here? <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's, it really boils down to mental gymnastics. So if you are one of these mainstream experts, and that's the irony that we put these people up on a pedestal and we consider them an expert, but one of the prerequisites to being an expert is that you have the ability to win the gold medal every single time you speak in mental gymnastics. That's, I think, part of the hiring process, to be an expert. <laughs> How good are you at mental gymnastics? Oh, whoa, you just won the silver medal in, in, <laughs> in Tokyo. Well, fantastic. You're hired. Let's put you on CNBC. All right. So let's, and, and also, too, let's remember this uh, story that we did last week. So they sit there and talk about how, well, there's room for optimism. We've got increasing incomes. Really? Because we go over here to CBS, and this is just from last week, and they say how incomes are falling in 17 states in nominal terms. Now, this is just individual income. We're not talking about uh, household income, which granted household income can get a little bit tricky because you could have fewer people in the actual average household. So I, I grant them that those statistics aren't, uh, you've got to look at more metrics other than just that one statistic. But when we look at other metrics like nominal incomes, uh, individual incomes, we can see that they're actually falling in 17 states. And then if you guys didn't see this video, you go down to this map and you see the areas that they're increasing in places like Florida and Alabama. And even those haven't kept up with the rate of consumer price inflation when you look at the year over year numbers. So the Fed raising interest rates or stopping uh, the interest rate cycle. I don't know why that's room for optimism. We just simply look at a chart of Fed funds going back to 1955. You look at uh, real income supporting consumer demand. Okay, just again, scratch beneath the surface. And you see that's a non-starter. 
So now let's look at the, uh, oh, the banking turmoil. Yes, because we know the banking crisis is done. So there's nothing to see here. The Fed came out and solved the problem. So we've got a, a very robust and, and um, resilient banking system. <laughs> I'm sure they use that word over and over and over again. So let's just, out of curiosity, go over to the, uh, another Fred chart. And we're going to look at the bank term funding program, which you guys know from watching my videos is something that the Fed set up as a response to the banking crisis. So if this banking crisis was in the rearview mirror, you would expect this facility to no longer be in use, right? Because we're done. We, we Look, let's put on the rose colored glasses. This, this bank, that, that's old news. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We don't have to worry about a contraction of credit. We don't have to worry about tight money. We don't have to worry about deflationary money in the global monetary. So what are you talking about, George? Okay, well, let's just go over to the bank term funding program or BTFP as the Fed calls it. And you see that, oh my goodness gracious, are we at zero? Uh, no, we're not at zero. We are actually at 108 billion. And to give you some context here, let's go back to March of 2023 when we had the major part or let's say the first part of the banking crisis, and it was up to $64 billion. $64 billion. Today, 108 So how can you sit there and argue that the banking crisis is completely in the rearview mirror, and it's absolutely nothing that you should be worried You shouldn't even be thinking about it. It shouldn't even be on your radar. But yet, the facility, the tool that the Fed had and set up to prevent the banking crisis from getting even worse is being utilized to a greater degree now than it was when Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and Signature went bust back in March. You see how, how easy it is to debunk the mainstream view when you just use a little teeny weensy bit of critical thinking and just a couple charts. <laughs> <laughs> but we are not done yet. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Let's focus on the real income supporting consumer demand part that Doug Porter and Scott Anderson talk about. For this, let's go right over to an, uh, a recent article. I think this just came out today from CNN Business. All right, so... Title of the article, oh, let me get to the top here. Student loan payments are back. Here's where some Americans are trimming their budgets. And when we go back to the Wall Street Journal article, you'll see that they reference this uh, a couple different times. 
But let's get into this article, and they talk about some stories that I think a lot of you guys will resonate with. Maybe not you personally, but I'm sure with your uh, your social group, your friends and your family members, this is going to be a story that's going to sound very familiar. But but remember, guys, the economy is booming. And remember, guys, we are going to have this massive uh, burst of aggregate demand as a result of real incomes going up over the last two months. Here we go. Quote, I think somewhere I'll tighten up. And this is from a gal named Justine Lyons. She's 49, Decatur of Decatur, Georgia. I think somewhere I'll tighten up and spend a little less on groceries. She's talking about having to repay her student loan. But I don't really know yet. Honestly, I go month by month. I do have a little spreadsheet where I lay out where I lay it out month or two in advance. And the next three months, they don't look so good. Every month coming up looks tighter and tighter. So would this be more consistent with the view of the experts or of the actual statistics of the or of the data? And what I'm talking to you specifically, or what I'm referring to specifically, is median incomes, household incomes going down. So all the anecdotal stories that you hear, and I'm sure the what you guys are experiencing in your own life, would be consistent with this chart, which is something I pulled up in 22 seconds. But yet somehow the experts ignore this. But we're not done. Let's go back to this CNN article here. And this is the gal and her three daughters, single mom, three daughters. That's a topic for a completely separate video. You want you might want to go over and uh, and watch some of my buddy Rich Cooper's videos on that one <laughs> for more insights. So, you know, look, I, I want to be sympathetic and whatnot, but at a certain point, you know, you, you got to kind of ask not just the single moms, but the single dads too. You know, m- maybe you might want to uh, put a little bit of the blame on your decision-making process to begin with, but. Anyway, let's focus on the macroeconomics here. So they're talking about how many Americans are going to have to start repaying this $1.6 trillion, $1.63 trillion of student loan debt. So now what's interesting is they, they focus on the individual story that I think most of you can relate with. And then they start asking the experts again. And this is Emerson Sprick, senior economist, analyst with a bipartisan policy. I think households are better equipped to handle this than they would have been before the pandemic, before the stimulus programs. So my question to Emerson here, because again, I'm not going to read this whole article, but what you'll see, the the overall theme is that, oh my gosh, the central planners came in with all of their brilliance and they saved the day with their, look at all the benefits of the stimulus package and look at all the benefits of putting the student loan payments on pause And why wouldn't we just want to do this indefinitely? It becomes political, of course, with CNN. So why wouldn't we want to just do this indefinitely? I mean, look look at the story of, uh, what was the gal's name? Lyons, uh, Justine. What what, what are you, some sort of just, um, well, I was going to use some profanity there. I'll I'll, I'll save you the profanity. What are you, some kind of jerk where you wouldn't, you want to have Justine put her in a position where she might go homeless? where she's going to be under more and more financial stress? What, what, what are you? Just, you? You're just some sort of, uh, you, you're just very callous 
You're not empathetic to these people. Why wouldn't we just forgive the student loans? In fact, why wouldn't we just do the stimulus? This is the whole theme, basically. They're trying to guilt you into voting and looking at what, uh, you know, the student loans and saying, oh, who's going to forgive these student loans? Oh, well, the Democrat? Oh, let's just vote for them. That's really the overall push of this article. But let's get back to the economist here, Emerson Sprick. And I would ask Emerson, okay, great. Look, if the stimulus programs worked so well, and if they created this economic boom, then why would why are we going to stop? Like, why wouldn't we just keep doing stimulus forever? If we're going to have all this economic growth, if the labor market is going to be tight, if it's going to result in real wages going up, and if it's going to give Justine a break, well, then why stop the stimulus? You see where I'm going with this, right? They'll sit there and talk about how great these packages are, and then they'll say that they're absolutely needed especially now that inflation has gone up so much, but yet they never connect the dots. You see, it's amazing. In fact, I wrote down on my notes right here that several times in this article, they go back to Justine and they talk about how you know prior to the Cerveza sickness, she would have a little bit of extra spending money at the end of the month. They don't give a specific number, but let's just say you know $150. Times were tight. Things were tight but she had a little bit of wiggle room there at the end of the month. And now she's in the same position, at least prior to having to pay back her student loan. She's got a little bit of wiggle room there, but if we make her pay back her student loan, now that wiggle room is gone. And in fact, that's going to put her in the red for every single month. Okay. CNN, why do you think that now she's in the exact sit prior to having to pay her student loan back? Why do you think now she's in the exact same position that she was during the Cerveza sickness, but yet you took away the student loan? What does that tell you? That tells you that her overall purchasing power has gone down because she's in the exact same position, but yet you took away one of her expenses. So therefore, the other expenses have become a bigger percentage of her overall income. Why do you think that happened? Maybe it's because the central planners that you, CNN Business, and the Wall Street Journal, and the quote-unquote experts are bowing down to and praising for orchestrating this no landing and all of these times when people had so much additional disposable income because of the uh, stimulus and because they were just, you know, they were also in a good financial position because having because those student loans, they didn't have to make those payments. So why not just continue to do this in the future? And you know, this goes back to an overall theme that we talk about on this channel. And when I look into kind of the crystal ball, so to speak, and try to figure out a base case for the next five years, I think this is where we're going. And what I mean by that is you're just going to have more stimulus. They're going to forgive everything. They're going to do UBI. They're going to do more stimulus because of all these stories like Justine and they're going to, the central planners are going to be the arsonist and the firefighter. They're going to come in and say, listen, we understand that the inflation is bad, that your uh, purchasing power has gone down. And obviously it's because of all these greedy capitalists. So all of our amazing programs like the stimulus and locking you in a cage and forgiving student loan debt. I mean, all of this led to this economic boom. And if it wasn't for these greedy capitalists, this economic boom would continue forever. But the only reason that it's not going to continue forever is because we have this stupid inflation. It's just a result of all these people raising their, their dumb prices when they don't have, they're trying to price gouge the average American. So what we're going to do 
is we're going to go ahead and come up with price controls. We're going to make it illegal for these greedy entrepreneurs to raise their prices. And then what we're going to do is we're going to forgive all the student loans. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to give you universal basic income. We're going to give you stimulus forever. And then we won't have to worry about inflation because it's illegal to raise your prices. Problem solved. Vote for me. In my opinion, if you look down the uh, five years from now, this is most likely where we are going. Here, I also want to point out Oxford Economics estimates that uh, estimates that the impact to economic growth would be relatively small. So now they're talking about uh, student loans having to be repaid back. So remember, they have to be all in line with the economy's great, optimistic, nothing to see here. The Fed's orchestrated a, a, a brilliant no landing, you know, bravo central planners and authoritarians. They have to all be in line with that, right? And so they come out, that, so they can't admit that the student loan re being repaid is going to have any material impact on the economy. But yet, when you read the rest of the article, they sit there and argue as to how the forgiving the student loan payments was a boom to the economy. You see how they do that? They try to have their cake and eat it too. They try to sit there and say, why, gosh, you should vote for the people that are going to forgive student loan debt because this was a, a, this was a, a, a windfall for the economy. And just look at people like Justine that now have all this additional purchasing power and don't have that stress. And so, but if we have to start paying their loan back, then it's not going to be a big deal and it's not going to impact the economy. Which is it? Which is it, expert? You see, again, when you put on the critical thinking hat, you can see how they contradict themselves constantly and they kind of paint themselves into this corner. And the mainstream media never calls them out on it. Why? Because they're all part of team central planner. You see, if they looked at the yield curve, if they looked at all the data that we discuss, that we're discussing right now in this video, they'd have to come to the conclusion that the market is always right. The market is right, or let's just say 90% of the time, not the central planners. And therefore, we should give the decision-making to the marketplace. You see, but they can't handle that. That's too much cognitive dissonance for them. So they, they can never, ever admit that the market was right. They always have to, to spin it with those mental gymnastics we were talking about before to make it seem that everything that's good in the world, everything that's good in the economy right now is a result of the authoritarians. And if we could just give them a little more power and control over the economy, then all of our problems would be solved. Let's go back to the Wall Street Journal article. Now, first of all, I want to look at this chart. And I think this is fascinating. And Josh, I don't know if you can zoom in on this, but what you'll notice is the probability of U.S. recession according to the experts. So I'm, I'm just reading what this chart is. Probability the U.S. in a recession in the next 12 months. Um, this is according to the quote-unquote experts. Okay, now what I want you to notice is when these hit all-time highs. So the last time that it took, hit an all an, a high here was 95%. When was that? Oh, May of 2020. You mean right in the middle of the last recession. That would be correct, George. Now let's look at the GFC. And we hit a, a peak of 100%. 100% of the experts said that we were going to have a recession within the next 12 months. And looking in the rearview mirror, did we get that recession? Not only did we get it, 
But at the time when they expressed the most confidence level that we would have a recession in the next 12 months, we were actually right in the middle of a recession. <laughs> so you see my point. It's, it's again, they're looking in the rear view mirror. And so if you see this spike above 50%, what this usually tells you, usually, not always, but it usually tells you that we are in a recession. And it's pretty much the opposite of whatever they're thinking, assuming the yield curve is inverted. And you look at all these other data points. We could look at these other charts, but it's just, it's the exact same garbage over and over and over again when it's just whatever feels like the most probable outcome when you exclude data, you exclude common sense, and you just and you just kind of indulge your recency bias, I think this is the outcome or this is, are the results that you would expect with each one of these charts here. And what I'm referring to specifically is they ask them, at which meeting do you think the Fed will make its final increase to the current cycle of Fed funds rate? And they say that that's most likely over. And again, I think that if you just sit there and, and take out your brain and just feel with emotions based on recency bias, this is probably the conclusion that you would come to. Why? Because of what we've seen over the last three months. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez. When do you expect the Federal Reserve to make its next rate cut? Q2 of 2024. So then I would ask them, why would the Fed make a rate cut? If we don't have a recession, why? It's not like we have 18% interest rates right now. They're at 5% for heaven's sakes, or 5.25%. This is historically actually below average or right at average. So if we have this booming economy, if we're a resilient labor market, room for all this optimism, the central planners have all of these tools that they didn't have before, and we could just rely on their brilliance and their overall genius, why would they drop rates? Oh, right, they would drop rates because of what we've seen in the past. Again, going back to this chart of Fed funds. Look at every single time they drop rates. Why? Did, why? Why? Huh. It's weird that they drop rates every single time we get one of these gray bars. I wonder what, those I wonder what these gray bars represent. Oh, that's right. A recession. <laughs> a hard landing. Show me the time that they dropped rates. Uh, significantly dropped rates where we didn't have a hard landing and we had an inverted yield curve. That doesn't exist. Even going back to the 60s, they only dropped rates, let's say from 5.4 down to 3.7. So again, if you want to use that as an outlier and pin all your hopes that we will have a repeat of that, okay, that's fine. At least there's something, there's some example of that throughout history. But again, if you're betting on probabilities, You've got a 90% probability that this will not happen throughout the rest of 2023 or into 2024. The only reason they drop rates, or at least there's a 90% probability that when they drop rates, it'll be a result of a hard landing. So we go back to the experts at Deutsche Bank of all places. Over the past several months, the case for a soft landing has undeniably strengthened. Based on what, Brett? Based on what, Matthew? So, so even if you're to take the survey at face value, 
Remember, the whole reason that we've got room for optimism here, the whole reason we will not have a recession is because the labor market, because the Fed stops raising rates, uh, and if you want to argue, you know, real income. Okay, fan fantastic. So again, let's look at the trends here. And we see that it's undeniably strengthened. What has happened? What has changed over the last several months? What has changed? The answer is nothing. The Fed has paused. The labor, in fact, the unemployment rate is higher now. The only thing that has changed is there's more time that has gone by. And therefore, that gives the opportunity for more recency bias to be ingrained into the psyche and therefore turn that recency bias into a narrative. Some 81% of economists also said the recent run-up in bond yields to their highest level since 2007 increased the probability of recession. Okay, well, let's assume for a moment that bond yields, especially at the long end of the curve, are a symptom, a result of growth and inflation expectations. Let's assume that's true. I think there's a very, very strong argument for that. So if the long end of the curve continues to go up, that's actually bullish. Well, it's not bullish for bond prices, but that's the marketplace telling you that, hey, we're going to steepen out this yield curve. We're going to steepen it out to where now the long end of the curve is higher than the front end. A normal yield curve, which would indicate a healthy, growing economy. So I don't understand. Because if we have this bear steepener, meaning that the price of bonds are going down, and the yield curve is steepening out without the Fed having to raise or excuse me, without the Fed having to lower interest rates, that would be a very bullish sign for the economy. But yet somehow they're spinning that and saying, oh, well, higher interest rates, that's going to increase the probability of a recession. You see, I get their point, but you can't just sit there and say, well, it's just about higher interest rates, you know, trickling through the economy and leading to all the problems that you guys know about. Because I would argue that at the front end of the curve, but at the long end of the curve, I think it can be different that higher interest rates, although they may impact the economy, that is a signal that the economy is actually growing. You have inflation expectations. I mean, I don't understand how they can sit there and say with the uh, uh, let's just assume that everything stayed the same and bond yields stayed where they are right now. Let's say they just were frozen in time. I don't see how you could sit there and say that's indicative of a growing economy when the curve is still inverted by 30 or 40 basis points. No, if, if, if you have a growing economy, that the yield curve would be steep. The interest rates at the long end would be much, much higher than the front end of the curve. So again, th this is very inconsistent and they're cherry picking here. That's my point. So long video today, guys, and I wanted to go over the data, but just to restate what I said at the beginning, the, the main reason I wanted to go through all of these charts and all of these stories going from CNN to Wall Street Journal, then back to the, the, the Fed themselves and look at all these data points and why I wanted to do this live is just to encourage you to understand the incentives for these experts. So when you're watching them on CNBC or Bloomberg, you're, you're watching them and you're listening to what they say through the lens of understanding that their number one priority is keeping their job.
And what you're going to see these experts do over and over and over and over again is just take whatever has happened in the last six months and just their prediction is going to be that's going to happen for the next year or that's going to happen for the next two years. And what you should do is don't ignore it. Take that into consideration, but also understand that their incentives might not be to tell you the truth. And if you actually took these guys out to a bar and had a couple drinks, they might say something completely, completely different off the record. And you guys know that when everyone is on one side of the boat, usually the market's going to give you a rug pull. So the more and more economists and experts that are on the no recession bandwagon, I would say that increases the probabilities of us actually having a recession. Just like when everyone, and talking about the economists, was on the recession camp, we're going to have a recession immediately, 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 then we didn't have one. And so this is something that I struggle with all the time and I wrestle with because when I'm looking, watching the news, it's easy to get caught up in the narrative. But I think you know one of the conclusions that I've come to is that whenever I think I'm probably wrong, I'm most likely going to be right. Hopefully that makes sense from an emotional standpoint, whenever it feels like, oh my gosh, you know, I look at these curves, maybe they're wrong. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe everyone's saying this one thing. Oh, I can understand this. And then that's the time that you're most likely going to be right. If you're a contrarian, why? Because now you're, 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 you're having that human instinct to get on that same side of the boat as everyone else. Uh, 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 uh. And that's when the boat tips over and you get that rug pull. So that's something that we need to be cognizant of, of as well, just our own human nature. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.